if we really believe that Jesus is the ultimate answer. In the context of getting to know those things about your Jewish friends, maybe Jewish family members, you're going to understand what their values are, what their hurts are, what their hopes and joys are, what their fears are. Hopefully, that'll enable you to share your faith and to share the idea that Jesus is the Messiah, first for the Jewish people, in a more specific and more compelling way. Welcome to A Jew and a Gentile Discuss. I'm your co-host, Carly Berna. And I'm Ezra Benjamin. We're a Jew and a Gentile who both believe in Jesus and believe that there's value in looking at history as well as today's world in the headlines through both a Jewish and a Christian lens. Today, we're going to talk about what may be an awkward conversation sometimes, but hopefully we'll give you some tips, which is how to share Jesus with a Jewish friend. So let's discuss. So Ezra, before we start talking about kind of the steps and tools and resources of what would be helpful for this type of conversation, let's first clear up what may be a misconception that Jews don't need Jesus. Yeah, Carly, it is the foundational question. And, you know, it, it, it is necessarily, I'll say, an awkward topic. You know, if you're if you're a Christian listening and you have Jewish friends, maybe Jewish uh, extended family members, maybe, maybe in your experience, they've been willing to listen to what you believe and that that's good for you. And that's your religion or your faith system. And that's cool. But when you sort of reach across the aisle and say, I kind of sort of maybe think that's available for you too. And even more than available, I think maybe you need it to be right with God. Now you're in uncharted waters, it feels like. And the Jewish community, uh, more on this in a couple minutes, really has trained itself to systematically and categorically reject the idea that Jesus can be the Messiah. But we got to back up a little and answer your question, or, or you said the misconception, and rightly rightly labeled, is it is a misconception, is Jews don't need Jesus. But the larger misconception is Jews don't need a redeemer, right? Before we can talk about Jesus, we have to step back and say, do the Jewish people need a savior at all? And I think th- that's really the fundamental question. And Beyond any religious system, if we look at the book, if we look at the source text, the Hebrew Bible, which the Christian world knows is the Old Testament, right? Genesis through Malachi. If we look at the source text, what we see there very quickly is Adam and Eve are made in the image of God. They choose to sin and they understand that the consequences of that are death. And they make coverings for themselves out of animal skins. And immediately you have this idea introduced that without the shedding of blood, there can be no covering for the nakedness we have before God because of our sin and our awareness of that nakedness and our separation from him because of that that exposure, the exposure of being now in Adam's sinful men and women. And all the Christians are going, yep, that's it. That's the seeds of the gospel. But everything I just said is a Jewish idea. I think that's what's important to remember is that at the beginning of the book, three chapters in, we have a man and a woman who have fallen into sin and who have to shed blood to cover themselves to be in right standing with God. And without the shedding of blood, without a sacrifice, there can be no covering for themselves or for their sinful nature before God. And in Genesis chapter three, we understand that even in the midst of the curse, there's this ray of hope. And it's this idea that the serpent is going to crawl on his belly forever for as long as there's serpents on earth, because he's, you know, enticed the woman, enticed Eve to to make this choice and eat the forbidden fruit. And it says there in Genesis chapter three, the serpent will bruise her heel 
the seed of the woman. And it's literally there like the sperm, like the generations coming from this woman, Eve. The serpent will bruise her descendants' heel, but she and her descendants, more accurately, will crush his head. So right away, we see this idea in the Jewish Bible, in the Hebrew Bible, the book of Genesis, this idea that there's going to be an ultimate defeating of the serpent because one who's going to come from Eve is going to crush the head of the enemy, of the serpent of old, who enticed men and women to sin. And so right there you have, right, well, almost like I, I remember, you know, some of my first kind of experiences with the Christian communities. I got to know the Christian community in my teen years, Carly were this idea of the gospel cube, right? And you turn the cube and you see all the sides and the idea is God is holy, man is sinful, we're separated from God because of our sin. God sent Jesus to die for our sins, to cover our sins, and we can gain right standing with him and be made a new creation. That's a Jewish idea in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And so the idea of do the Jewish people need a redeemer? Is there the need for the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sins in traditional Jewish thought? Absolutely there is. Now, to answer your question, after taking five minutes to give the backstory, do the Jewish people need Jesus? Well, it's the second question, isn't it? Because even if a Jewish person is going to recognize, yeah, I agree, it's sort of part of our story, part of our identity, that we need a redeemer, we need the shedding of the blood of a lamb, a pure and spotless lamb for forgiveness of our sins, and without that, we can't have right standing with God. The question is, is Jesus was Jesus and is Jesus that pure and spotless lamb promised to our people? Is he the redeemer? Is he the one who can bring about forgiveness of sins? And by and large, the Jewish community has rejected the Messiahship of Jesus for several reasons that we're going to unpack a bit in this episode. But to answer the question or to, to dispel the misconception Jews don't need Jesus, we first have to address the larger misconception that the Jewish people don't need a redeemer. And Carly, the, the concept there really comes from two main key events, though many in the Jewish community might laugh me out of the room or, or mock me out of the room for the first one I'm about to name, the rejection of Jesus by the majority of Jewish people in the first century was a key event in Jewish history. Why? Because now you have this split. You have this significant number, thousands of Jewish men and women, many like Paul, well-studied, students, disciples of key rabbis and scribes and leaders in the Jewish world who all of a sudden start following Jesus as the Messiah. And then you have this larger majority of the Jewish community that says, no, we're not convinced. We, in fact, we're convinced he wasn't the one. And we're resistant to that idea. Even more so as non-Jewish people, Gentiles, start coming to faith in droves in the latter part of the second, in the latter part of the first century. So the, the rejection of Jesus as the Messiah and the second event in 70 AD under the Roman Empire, the second temple in Jerusalem is destroyed. And the Christian audience may go, yep, that's true. That's a historical fact. The Jewish audience is considering that a catastrophe. Why? Because the temple was where the presence of God dwelled, right? In order to fulfill our obligations to God as Jewish men of age, According to the scriptures, we needed to go to the place where God would put his name, namely the temple in Jerusalem, three times a year on Passover, on Shavuot, on the Feast of Tabernacles called Sukkot, and bring an offering and bring it through the priests to be offered to God in a physical temple and worship him and seek forgiveness. And that was the way that we could fulfill our duty, according to the scriptures, to regain right standing with God. So when the temple is destroyed, 
then there's no understanding of where the presence of God is or could be on earth. And also, there's no ability for the Jewish community in any scriptural way to actually fulfill God's requirement that we sacrifice blood, that we, we bring blood sacrifice to him to, to regain right standing with him. And so you have these problems. One, the idea that Jesus isn't the Messiah, so we're still waiting for a Messiah. And two, the Messiah is going to come to Jerusalem and he's going to come into the temple, but there is no temple. It's destroyed and we don't have any way to regain right standing with God. And so you have over the centuries, this huge rabbinic system, and there's variations of that today. You know, there's probably over 30 different uh, variations, and that's an understatement of rabbinic Judaism out there today. There's different versions in Israel than there are in Europe and different in Europe than there are in the U.S. and on and on we go. But all of these rabbinic Jewish systems are dealing with the issue, we don't yet have a Messiah that we know, and we don't have a temple where we can sacrifice, so what do we do? And so you have this whole system developed. I'm gonna I'm gonna say, kind of make another comment that might not be popular to our Jewish audience who, who aren't believers in Jesus, but I'm gonna say it. Like many of the world's religious systems, the rabbis, out of felt necessity, developed a system where we can say, yeah, there's no temple, but you're okay if you do this list of things. If you try to keep the commandments and avoid breaking the commandments by a long shot in these specific ways, through prayer, through good works, forgiving one another and being in right standing with one another, trying to be in right standing with God. But the idea, like so many religious systems in the world, is if you do this list of things, you're okay. Well, how can we be sure? Well, just do them, and we're going to hope for the best. So when you're talking to a Jewish person who has any experience in synagogue life, who is bar mitzvahed, who's uh, rabbinically Jewish and who's either very religious or not so religious, you're going to run up against this idea that we don't need a redeemer because we have a system that compensates for the lack of a temple. And, and so before you even get to talking about Jesus— and, and your conviction, your belief, and for, for those listening, probably it's one of the most important things in your life, if not the most important. Carly, for you and me, it's the most important conviction we hold on to as a Jew and a Gentile who both believe in Jesus, that Jesus is the Messiah. He's our Savior. He's the one who gives us that reconciliation and right standing before God the Father. And he's the one who makes a way for us to be with, with God eternally in heaven. And to rule and reign with him, we'll add, when he comes back to rule and reign on earth. And we pray that day comes soon. But sharing the idea of, of, of Jesus as the Savior requires first even getting into the concept that anybody needs a Savior to begin with. So I know I said a lot, but I, I'm trying to, to help our audience understand that if you dive right in, hey, you know, Solomon, my new Jewish friend, can I talk to you about how you need Jesus? Well, wait, 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 wait. Where's Solomon on the religious spectrum? Does Solomon even believe in God? If he believes in, that there is a God, does he believe the Hebrew Bible is actually the word of God or just a storybook about the Jewish people? And if he believes the word is really uh, authoritative in his life, does he understand that he's sinful since Adam and Eve because he's a son of Adam? In Hebrew, the way to say a man is ben Adam, literally son of Adam. Does he understand that in that line he's in need of forgiveness of sins? And does he understand that the only way to have forgiveness of sins is through blood sacrifice that has to come through a Messiah? So there's all these pre-issues you need to establish as you're getting to know your Jewish friend or extended Jewish family member 
maybe before you dive into Jesus is Lord and you need to repent and, and be saved. That's like step five. So that's part of what we're doing here today is to talk about maybe not necessarily a process because every conversation is going to go differently, Carly, but some of the building blocks and the things that our audience needs to understand to have a meaningful conversation with a Jewish person about the idea of the need for a savior and the idea that Jesus is that savior. Yeah, I think that's great context as we think about, do Jews need Jesus? Well, first, do they need a redeemer? Does anyone need a redeemer? That's a good foundation to have. So as we think about, you know, how to go about having this conversation, Ezra, what would you say is the most important thing to start with? One of my one of my closest and longest term mentors, the, the CEO of Jewish Voice Ministries, Jonathan Burnus, always says, people don't care what you know until they know that you care. And I think that rings true here. Again, the idea of, hey, Solomon, I know we just met like yesterday on the subway from Brooklyn to Manhattan, but I really believe that you need to hear about Jesus and I'd like to say a prayer with you. Well, maybe, maybe the power of the Holy Spirit is going to work in that situation. And Solomon, without any context, is so overcome by conviction of sin and the presence of the Lord and the reality that your message is power unto salvation, first for the Jew and also for the nations, as Paul says in Romans 1.16, that he's going to pray that prayer with you. But more likely is going to be, he's going to say, wait a minute, we just met yesterday. First of all, who are you? Second of all, I appreciate that you're a believer in Jesus. He would probably say that you're a Christian, but what does that have to do with me? And third of all, why should I listen to what you say matters most if you don't care what matters most in my life? So I think developing relationship and really pursuing genuine friendship is important. Now, now all of us as believers are motivated by, you know, you could call it the Great Commission. You could call it being compelled to share our faith. Uh, you could call it, you know, as simple as, as in non-theological terms as, you know, I believe that this is God's way to be with him forever. And I don't want people I'm friends with or people in my family to be separated from him forever. Wherever you're at and however you express your your felt obligation or desire or, or need to share the gospel, I think it's important to know who you're talking to and to let that person know that you care about them. And for our audience, right, flip it around. If somebody meets you and right away you sniff out that really all they want in this relationship is sort of a transactional thing where they're going to try to sell you on what they want you to agree to, I don't want that. Carly, you, you probably don't want that. I don't think our audience wants that. So Friendship is important. And in the context of that friendship, you know, for those who are listening going, yeah, 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 but I'm compelled to share the gospel. When do I get to share the gospel? Well, you know, when you get to know somebody, you're going you're gonna to understand what their values are, what their hurts are, what their hopes and joys are, what their fears are. And if we really believe, which Carly, you and I do, that Jesus is the ultimate answer, right, to the hopes and fears of, of all of our lives. And our greatest victories and our greatest hurts and disappointments, then in the context of getting to know those things about Solomon or your Jewish friend or extended family member, we'll call him Solomon for the sake of having an imaginary friend here, uh, you're going to find out what those things are. And hopefully that'll enable you to share your faith and to share the idea that Jesus is the Messiah first for the Jewish people in a more specific and more compelling way. So as you mentioned earlier, Jewish people obviously have their scriptures and their Bible, which for those who are Christian, they know is a portion of what we would call the Christian Bible. How would you go about sharing the gospel in a way that a Jewish person would understand through the context of their own Bible? Yeah, good question. And again, just as a refresher, I know some of our audience knows this, but for others just tuning in, and this is one of the first episodes they've heard, Carly, maybe they don't know this. 
the Christian Bible, we call the Old and the New Testament, right? So the Jewish Bible or the, the Jewish scriptures, the Tanakh is called, are what the Christians know as the Old Testament. So the Jewish Bible begins in Genesis and in the kind of traditional way that it's organized, same in the Christian Bible, ends in Malachi, right? About 400 years or three, 400 years before the coming of, of Jesus. But that's the end. Those are the scriptures. The last thing that's penned that's recognized as, if you will, canonized by the Jewish community or part of the, the Hebrew Bible, the Jewish Bible, uh, is, is those last prophets like Malachi writing in hundreds of years B.C., so the idea there is if if you begin with a Jewish person by saying, hey, I want to share what's most important to me. John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world that, you know, you go on and on and on. That may not work. Why? Because you're saying, well, it's a Bible verse. I'm sharing the Bible with, with a Jewish person. Well, not their Bible. So my recommendation is in many cases, not always, again, you got to feel out, you know, with your friend or family member where they're at and what's going to resonate with them. But if your Jewish friend or family member has any awareness or acknowledgement that this book called the Hebrew scriptures is in fact the word of God to the Jewish people, why not make good use of portions of scripture that the Jewish community already holds in very high regard and would agree is the word of God inspired through through Moses and the prophets and the Torah and the, the prophets and the writings. Uh, so that that's in short kind of where I would start is, and, and I know this is an area maybe outside of Christian comfort zone, right? Because when we think about sharing the gospel, we're going to quote verses about Jesus. But I think it's important to remember that the Jewish community leaders who knew there can be no forgiveness apart from the shedding of blood and who were waiting for a Messiah uh, hundreds, if not a thousand years before he came, were aware of what he would be like as the Lord showed them and they penned the scriptures, actually where he would be born, that he would be born in Bethlehem, between what major world events or events in the history of Israel he would be born. Daniel talks about that. We'll get into the specifics in a moment. What he would do and actually even that he would die but not stay dead. It's all in the Old Testament scriptures. It's not some new idea that we just learn about, you know, that Jesus kind of comes out of nowhere as a superhero inaugurating a Christian religion, the, the son, you know, of Mr. and Mrs. Christ. He's the fulfillment of what the prophets saw. And, and there's a number of, of scriptures we could look at that, that point to that. And that would be a great place to start in sharing your faith with a Jewish person. So like you said, as a Christian, we might want to go immediately to sharing about Jesus. But what I think is important to just stop and think about is if you're going to share scriptures about Jesus, there's not only scriptures about Jesus in the New Testament. There's scriptures about Jesus in the Old Testament, messianic prophecies that you, you know, as a Christian, you know about. But John 3.16 comes to mind first. You might have to do a little research about what are some of these prophecies, but these are actually in the Hebrew Bible. So Ezra, what are some of these scripture references that you could share with a Jewish person that do talk about Jesus, but are in the Old Testament? Sure. Good question. And I think let's let's start with one of the earliest. This isn't the earliest. Actually, the idea of uh, one in the, in the descendants of Adam and Eve, the new Adam, if you will, the Messiah crushing the head of the serpent, as I said, is in Genesis 3. But at the end of what the Jewish community knows as the Torah, so Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the end of Deuteronomy, or you know, a good ways through near the end of the Torah, 
Moses is kind of giving his final speeches, his final instructions before he dies on the mountain and Joshua leads the people past Jericho into the promised land. But Moses says in Deuteronomy 18 verse 15 that there's one coming after me or the father's going to raise up a prophet after me who is greater than I. Now for the Jewish community, like you can pause right there. Because if you ask any Jewish person, like, who's, who's the greatest among us other than kind of our father Abraham, right? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Almost immediately, you're going to hear Moses. Moses was the closest to God. Moses penned the Torah. Moses led the people out of Egypt. He led us through the wilderness. He helped us to understand God's commandments. He beheld the glory of God on Mount Sinai, right? It's Moses. He's like the apex of what it means in the Jewish world to be close to God and somebody who was used by God in a mighty way. But Moses says to the children of Israel, to Joshua and the hundreds of thousands listening in 18, in Deuteronomy 18, 15, there's one coming after me who's greater than me. And then he says these three key words, listen to him. In essence, when you see the one who's greater than you've seen everything, than, than everything you've seen me do as God empowered me, greater in holiness, greater in signs and wonders, greater in prophetic utterance, greater in closeness to the Father and the manifestation of the glory of God our Father, listen to him. And Moses, I believe, understood in that moment, he, he was looking ahead, he was in essence prophesying about the Messiah, who we believe is Jesus. And so from the Jewish scriptures, you can talk to a Jewish person and say, hey, even Moses, even Moses said there's somebody who was coming who was greater. And the prophets referenced Moses. David referenced Moses. So it's not the prophets or David. It's one who would even be greater than Moses. So that's one example. And, and I think it's important to, you know, if you're going, uh, I don't know about that. How do we know that's Jesus? Well, let me, Christian audience, point you, my friends, to the book of Acts in chapter 3, verse 22. Peter, on kind of this week of Shavuot, or what in the Christian community is known as Pentecost, because the Shavuot on the Jewish calendar after the ascension of Jesus, the year that he died and was resurrected, as you know, the first Jewish believers are filled with the Holy Spirit and they see what looks like flames of fire above their heads and they start speaking in languages that the Jewish communities in the entire known world who were assembled together at Jerusalem can understand. And in the context of this massive outpouring of the Holy Spirit, uh, really for the first time in history in that measure, and hundreds and thousands of people coming to faith, Peter makes this great speech and he references what Moses said. He references, he draws the audience's attention. Hey, remember when Moses said there's one coming who was greater and you should listen to him? Jesus, Yeshua in Hebrew, because Yeshua means salvation. So the name Jesus actually means salvation because he would save his people from their sins. Yeshua is the one who's greater than Moses. And I'm imploring you, audience listening to me in Jerusalem, listen to Yeshua. Listen to his words, listen to his teachings, listen to his claims, receive him as the Messiah. And so we see the promise made by Moses and the exhortation to listen to him confirmed by Peter in the New Testament. And then, Carly, just two others, and there's so many others, there's you know, over 50 other verses we could quote or passages that speak to who the Messiah would be, how he would live, where he would be born, and where he would die, and, and, and everything in between. But um, interestingly, our audience might not know that Isaiah 53, right? So we just talked about 
the Hebrew Scriptures, Genesis through Malachi, is this authoritative document. It's the Word of God held in such high regard by Jewish people worldwide. And the more the more religiously observant the Jewish community, the higher regard the, the, the Bible is held in, the Jewish Scriptures. And yet, Isaiah 53 actually isn't printed in many versions of Jewish Scriptures that are distributed in the back of uh, seats in synagogues in the United States and around the world. And if it is printed, it's rarely talked about. And for our Bible scholars who know Isaiah 53, if you don't, I'd say get on your phone right now, look it up on wherever you do your online Bible, or if you're like me, old school, and actually have a printed copy sitting around, check out Isaiah 53, like either now or or later today when you have a chance. This is who has believed our report and to whom has the, the arm of the Lord been revealed. And it's talking about this suffering servant who would be pierced for our transgressions and wounded for our iniquities, right? He was bruised for our iniquities and the punishment that brought us peace was laid upon him and that it pleased God to bruise him, but yet he wouldn't stay dead. He wouldn't stay in the grave. He made his grave with the wicked, but he wouldn't stay in the grave. So the suffering of of the Messiah, the reason for his suffering, for the atonement of sins for Israel, and we can say by application, all who would call upon his name and have faith in him and his resurrection are all in Isaiah 53. But if you ask a rabbi or an observant Jewish person about Isaiah 53, chances are they're going to write it off as an allegory or they're going to change the subject. And if you ask a non-religious Jewish person about Isaiah 53 and start reading it, I can almost guarantee you they will never have heard it in their lives. And they're going to say, why are you reading me the New Testament? And you're going to say, you know what? I'm not. It's your Bible. Talk about a great on-ramp to a conversation about our need for Jesus, for Yeshua as Savior, Jew and Gentile alike. And then uh, the last verse I want to point our, our listening audience's attention to is Daniel 9, verse 26. And you need to look uh, a couple verses before and after that verse. But the idea there is that it talks about how the temple, and so we know based on the time Daniel's writing this, he was talking about the second temple, that the temple is going to be destroyed. Okay, so Daniel's looking ahead to this day when the temple, namely the second temple we know, would be destroyed in Jerusalem. And it says in verse 26 of chapter 9, and all this will happen after the anointed one is cut off. And the word cut off there in Hebrew is executed, killed. And it says, but not for his own sake. So in essence, we can look back now with historical eyes however religious or not religious your Jewish friend or extended family member is, and look at Daniel 9, verse 26, and with the knowledge we have of history now, see that Daniel was saying the Messiah of Israel, who would die for not for himself, but for the people, for the sake of the people of Israel, would die before the second temple would be destroyed. And the second temple was destroyed in 70 AD. So it's a proof text, again, uncomfortable conversation with the religious Jewish community, but it's right there in black and white in the Hebrew scriptures. It's a proof text that the Messiah had to come and actually die before the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. To get back on the highway here, Carly, those are some examples, not all, but the idea is you don't have to immediately jump to the New Testament what what a Jewish person would say is, quote unquote, the Christian Bible, even though we understand it's for Jew and Gentile alike, it's all inspired by God. Uh, you don't have to jump only or even first to the New Testament 
in order to begin talking to a Jewish person about the, the, the need of Israel and the need of each of us individually for a Messiah, for a Savior. Yeah, it always blows my mind that Isaiah 53 is not in some of the Hebrew Bibles, that they're just, you know, erase it. Um, so, I, Ezra, I want to I talk about kind of the words that you would use when talking to a Jewish person. I know I've had a Jewish friend where before I understood the context of Christianity and Judaism and how they fit together, I made all of the mistakes that you could make. I talked about Jesus Christ and converting them in church and all of these words that uh, are, are so foreign and they have such a different view of. Um, what, are, what is the terminology you would use uh, when talking to a Jewish person? And I know earlier in one of our podcast episodes, we talked about how the word convert is something that you don't want to use. You're not actually converting them from Judaism to Christianity. They're just accepting their Messiah. So that's one word specifically I want to ask you about. But then also, you know, we say, you might hear Ezra say sometimes Yeshua um, and Jesus. If you're talking to a Jewish person, do you want to use Yeshua? Are they familiar with that? Or is using Jesus okay? Just kind of talk to us about the terminology. You know, what's important to remember here is the framework we all need to have in our minds. And if you're not sure, if, if, if you hear what I'm about to say and go, uh, I don't know about that, I'd really encourage you to listen to our other episodes on similar topics uh, because we really do have conviction around this. But to our Christian audience, the framework we need to keep in mind is when you're not asking a Jewish person to leave their Jewish faith and convert to a new religion called Christianity in order to receive Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. And so I'll mention some terms that maybe are more readily receivable by a Jewish person than others, but you can use all the right terms and still have the wrong idea, right? I can say you need to receive Yeshua, Jesus, your Jewish Messiah, so that you can become a Christian. Okay, no, <laughs> that is <laughs> right terms, wrong fr wrong framework. And so uh, let, me, let me just emphasize, it's the framework I think here that's paramount for us all to understand. So what do I mean by that? Let me answer your second question first. The idea of Jesus versus Yeshua. Yeshua means salvation. That was his Hebrew name. Nobody ever called Jesus, Jesus, or Jesus, or Yesu, or Yesus, or Jesu Christo, or the Christ in his lifetime. I know, shocker, some of you just like deleted future episodes of the podcast and are about to turn off your earbuds. Don't do it yet. Nobody called Jesus any of those terms in his lifetime. They spoke Hebrew and they spoke Aramaic and his name was Yeshua, okay? Which was kind of a harbinger in the Jewish community because everybody understood that Yeshua, just an accent on the different part of the word, the root word in Hebrew, is salvation. Well, why was... You know, why was Mary instructed to call his name Yeshua? Because he would save Yeshua, his people, from their sins. And so in essence, everybody's walking around, hey, how you doing today, God saves? How you doing today, salvation? You know, it was, it was so obvious. All that being said, I love the name Yeshua because I'm used to it, because I grew up, you know, around other uh, Jewish family members, some of whom spoke Hebrew, and I grew up more recently around other Jewish believers who Yeshua is kind of, it's, it's the heart language of how we talk to Jesus. That being said, the average Jewish person in the United States or even Israel, believe it or not, though they're Hebrew speaking, isn't going to know the name Yeshua. Why? In the English speaking world, 
his name is Jesus. And if you say Yeshua, you may end up confusing the situation, right? You're trying to be more historically accurate, but you're not talking to somebody who lived and died in 68 AD. You're talking to an American Jew or a European Jew, right? Who's living in an English speaking world uh, by and large, and who knows Jesus is the Messiah. And then they would finish the sentence for the Christians. And you're saying, no, Jesus is the Messiah, the savior for all mankind, first for the Jew. More on that in a moment. So I think using Jesus, you know, it, we shouldn't be afraid of that. And in most cases, in the English-speaking world, it may be more appropriate. And in the Hebrew-speaking world, in case you're ever on Israeli Jeopardy, people don't refer to Jesus as Yeshua. The unbelieving Jewish community derogatorily refers to him as Yeshu. So they, they drop the final Hebrew letter off of it, and they've created an acronym that literally stands for, may his name be blotted out. I'm sorry to say. And again, why? That sounds terrible. Remember, the context of the mainstream rabbinic Jewish world is the collective rejection of Jesus as the Messiah. And so saying, may his name be blotted out, if you really believe that Jesus is the God of the Christians and a great deceiver of the Jewish community, uh, then you think you're doing a mitzvah. You think you're doing a good work by saying, may his name be forgotten. You know, he's nothing to us. And that's part of why Paul's saying it takes those blinders being removed from the eyes of Jewish people, the scales falling off to really understand who Jesus is through the cultural and historic rejection of him. So all that to say, uh, referring to Jesus as Jesus. And if it comes up in conversation, you might say, by the way, you know, he's, his Hebrew name is Yeshua. And that's what he, what his parents called him. He had a Hebrew name. He was, why are you saying that? To teach a Jewish person a Hebrew word that they don't know or to correct them? No, but to connect for your Jewish friend or extended family member, hey, I'm talking about a Jewish man who lived in Israel in a Jewish context, who was recognized as a rabbi, and whose life, death, and resurrection confirm his messiahship as the shepherd of the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So the name becomes a connection point. But generally, I'd start with Jesus, because however people feel about Jesus, they know who you're talking about. Yeshua, they may not know. You may be confusing them. And then you hear me saying a lot, it's kind of second nature to me, Messiah. Why aren't I saying Christ? Again, are you going to permanently ruin your opportunity of sharing the gospel with a Jewish person if you say Christ? No, not necessarily. I hope it doesn't. Uh, I hope the relationship can endure more than a, uh, you know the wrong terminology. But Christ and Christian are so closely related that sometimes, Carly, it's just it's it's not necessarily helpful to use words that the mainstream Jewish community is going to quickly equate with another religion. So saying Messiah, the idea of Messiah in Jewish thought, whether you're religious or not religious, it's a very Jewish concept. Uh, the ultra-Orthodox rabbis still believe that the days of the Messiah, when the one and the, you know, the son of David will rule and reign on earth, that those are still coming. They just don't believe he's come the first time yet. So Messiah is a very Jewish concept. Christ is very closely associated not with Messiah, but with Christian, Christian. And so I would say Messiah is a good neutral term or even Jewish friendly term that you could use. Uh, so there's just a couple examples. But again, the framework is key, that the terminology you're using is to speak about the Jewishness of Jesus, that Jesus came first for the lost sheep of the house of Israel, that the gospel is first for the Jew, and that receiving the Jewish Messiah doesn't make you a member of another religion. It fulfills everything God intended for the house of Israel, for the Jewish people. So Ezra, obviously you're Jewish. So if you were talking to someone 
who was Jewish and not a believer, your testimony would be important because you would be able to talk about your experience. What about for the Christian listening? Should they be sharing their testimony when talking to a Jewish person who doesn't believe in Jesus while they're trying to have this conversation about sharing the gospel? I think the the short answer is yes. And again, you know your friend better than we do, better than Carly and I do. You know the context you know what's going to resonate with them because you've been getting to know them or maybe you've known them for years and you're ready to kind of take this bold step and share what's most important to you. But generally, I would say yes. Why? Because you want them to do what you did and become a Christian? No, but because I think, Carly, what you know, you can share all the Old Testament prophecies you want and you can share all the scriptural proof text you want and you can talk, you can use all the right terminology. But at the end of the day, I think... A Jewish person, just like anybody else, is looking at you, the messenger, right? And saying, you're telling me this is the most important thing. So I want to see that this most important thing actually was transformative in your life. And sharing your testimony has power. I think, you know, we know even from the book of Revelation, we overcame the accuser, the one who's constantly attacking and refuting our faith and trying to get us down and discourage us and accuse us before the Father. We overcame by the blood of the Lamb and by the power of our testimony. And I think sharing from personal experience, right? Somebody might say, that's not for me, but they can never deny what you're saying happened to you and saying, this is the life-altering impact that a relationship of love and forgiveness that I have with the Father through Jesus had in my life. And if they, especially if you've come to faith in the context of being friends with a Jewish person, they're watching you. Because any of us, regardless of our religious system or belief, when we see one person and go, they were something then and they are something entirely different now, all of us are asking, how? I want to know how that happened. And so sharing your testimony is incredibly powerful. Even if they conclude, you know what, that's good for you, that's not for me, at least they've seen a living, breathing example of a life transformed that's giving glory to God for it and praising Jesus for it. So yeah, I would say definitely share your testimony. Yeah, any life transformation I think uh, people are drawn to. So I would say probably the first thing we should have started with, but it's the last thing on our list here, is that uh, you should go into the conversation with prayer. So how would you encourage those listening to be praying about the conversation or praying for the person? Yeah, I think, you know, and we talk a lot about this, Carly, but I'll just, uh, on the podcast, on other episodes, but I'm going to say it again. In your prayer space, one, you care about this person, right? The person you're thinking of, God's put on your heart, or just you have this this relationship with them. You care about them. You care about their family. They're a human being who has real genuine needs, hurts, unfulfilled desires, just like each of us do. And connecting with that, you know, getting in touch with your, your sentiment towards this Jewish friend or extended family member, and the reality that you want what's best in their life. You want to see them blessed. You want to see them have peace. You want to see them have well-being and abundant life. And you know that that comes first and really only in, in their true sense through a relationship with God through Jesus. 
praying for them along those lines. You know, Lord, I want, you know, my friend Solomon to have abundant life. I know that you are the way, the truth, and the life. Would you give me an opportunity to share that abundant life? So in terms of wanting the Lord's best for somebody out of personal relationship and affection, that's a good place to start in prayer. And the other one, maybe this feels a little bit more uh, more difficult to grasp, but I really want to encourage our audience, our Christian audience, especially listening, and those with a Jewish heritage. I want to challenge you. Pray one sentence a week, even, okay, for a week. Ask God to show you more of his heart for Israel and the Jewish people than what you have today and see what he does. Because my guess is that what that the result of that is going to be you're going to read passages in the Old Testament, the New Testament, wherever you are in your Bible in a year or whatever you do that you've read your whole life. And all of a sudden, what's going to jump out on the page is the Jewish context. What's going to jump out on the page is Jesus saying, I've come. I was sent for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And God saying through Jeremiah, if I could break my covenant with the morning, if the sun is not going to come up today and the moon and stars aren't going to come out tonight, then I'd be willing to break my covenant with Israel. And when you let that settle in, along with the reality that you already know as a believer that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one the prophets foretold. He's the hope of Israel. He's the desire of the nations. He's the one through whom the fullness of the Gentiles comes about and through whom, according to Romans 11, all Israel will be saved in a day we haven't yet seen. When you put those two things together, you're going to have a burden like you've never had before to share with that Jewish friend or family member. But it can it can really be a God-given burden. So that, that, that's my encouragement. That's my challenge. Seven days, one sentence a day, God, open the eyes of my understanding to the fullness of your heart for your Jewish people and see what he does. I think you'll be amazed at the results. Yeah, what a challenge. Ask God to show you more of his heart for Israel and the Jewish people. Almost kind of a a scary challenge, like sure. what would he reveal? But uh, a great encouragement. So for those listening, I think we've talked about this before, but Ezra and I both in our day jobs work at a nonprofit called Jewish Voice Ministries. And our whole mission is to share the gospel with Jewish people, just like the way we're talking about it, whether it's starting through humanitarian aid or providing them clean water or just through relationship, that's that's what we get to do every single day. And if you haven't heard us talk more about that, you can get more information on our website about it, ajunagentiledisgust.org. This podcast is supported by those who listen, but again, with that goal of sharing the gospel with Jewish people. So if you like the content that you hear, that you're learning, please support us by going to our website, giving a donation to us. We're also offering this coffee that we've sourced directly from one of the countries that we go and support, which is Ethiopia. The coffee is called the Lost Tribes Coffee. You can get that on our website as well. You can get it as often as you'd like. If you're interested, we're giving away a free bag of that coffee each month, and you can enter to win by texting JG to 474747. You can also enter on the website. So if you want to continue supporting us and supporting what we're doing, sharing the gospel around the world, we would love if you would do that. If you want to hear more episodes of this podcast, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
please leave us a review. We love reading your feedback. You can also follow us on social media and engage with us at the handle A Jew and a Gentile Discuss. If there's any topics you want us to discuss, you can share that on the website as well. Thanks again for listening this week and join us next week for another episode. The show is a production of Jewish Voice Ministries International. 